First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Follow along in your Bible while I read. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come into this Word that You help us. Lord, we don't know... We don't have the strength to understand uh, these words, to understand the meaning for us in our lives without your divine help. So God, move in our hearts, convict us where we are, have fallen, and encourage us as a community. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at those words right, right there at the beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore... The end of all things is at hand, therefore. What does that mean? Well, it means first that this entire passage that I just read is framed within the context of our future hope. Meaning the end is coming, the end is imminent, the end is at hand, so therefore, and then he goes on and he gives a bunch of instructions. We are a future-shaped people. I want you to understand that. We are a future-shaped people, which means that as Christians, we don't just simply look at the past. We don't just simply look at the present. You see, everyone else around us, that's all they have to work with. The past and the present. What's gone before us, what we can learn from history, and where we're currently at. As Christians, we also know the future. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in the next week or two weeks or a couple years or a hundred years. We don't know the immediate future. But we have a real concrete hope in the future. And we know the end of the story. It's almost like you, you started reading a novel and you read the, the, the end first. We know where we're going, and where we're going affects and determines how we live today. So we are a future-shaped uh, people, so therefore we must be a countercultural people in the society around us. Now, as, as it's already been mentioned, for the sake of sounding redundant, this last Monday we had some riots break out in our neighborhood and in our city amidst this week stores being boarded up groceries medicine unable to be bought by many racial and economic tensions in the air political and community leaders scratching their heads trying to ask the deeper questions what's going on what's wrong it's the deeper issue. And then there's some clear issues at hand. Issues of systemic injustice. Issues of economic prejudice. 
amidst this week we now gather today to hear a message of hope. And let me, let me say this, all right? The message of hope that we have today is the most hopeful message that you have heard all week. I guarantee it. What, we have, what we're about to say this morning is something that would blow the mind of many people in this city if they actually believed it. We have a message this morning of real, concrete hope. And it's because it's not a message that is coming from me, but it's coming from God's Word. This is a message from God this morning. As we begin, let me, let, me, let me start off with this statement. What we believe about the future affects how we live today. So if we have a hopeful future, then we will live hopeful lives in the moment. Whereas if we have a helpless future, we will live out of helplessness. Why is it that some young people in our city and others broke windows, looted stores? Have you asked that question? What's, the deep, what's deeper there? What's going on? Why is it? Now, there's probably a number of reasons, and that would be an interesting conversation for us as a church to have as we seek to serve, but here's one thought that I want to propose this morning. Many youth in our city have lost hope in this world. Many youth in our city have lost hope in maybe even graduating high school, going to college, working a job. Many youth in our city have lost hope in the reality that they might too be able to raise a family and live a meaningful life. And without hope, friends, we act out of hopelessness. Now, again, going back to this message of hope this morning, maybe some of you, maybe some of you looted, all right? Maybe, maybe you were part of it. The message that we have for you this morning is a message of hope that can transform and change every single one of us in this room. No matter our race, no matter our economic standing, no matter whether or not we're, we're rich or we're broke, the message that we have will and can, if we let it, transform us. So let's get into it. What is our hope? All right, let's ask that question. Let me, let me give it to you really quick because we have to understand our hope if we're going to understand this passage. God created a beautiful world. God is a good creator and he created the world and he called it what? Anybody? Good. He called it good. Well, humanity wrecked it. We destroyed it. We rebelled against God. We said we don't want God to be our God. We want to be our own little gods. And as a result, everything is now perverted and warped and messed up and cracked. We ruined it. Why is there injustice? It's because we mess things up. Why do authorities abuse their authorities? Because we mess things up. 
Why do people loot stores? It's because we messed things up. You see what I'm saying? Humanity brought sin into this world. Now, thankfully our story doesn't end right there. Christ, the King of all creation who has existed as God with God since the beginning of eternity, which has no beginning, came into this world. The God-man in the flesh. And he announced that the kingdom of God is here. It's among us. You can't see it or touch it or feel it yet, but it's among us. Because the King has arrived. The King, Jesus Christ, lived the life that I should have lived. He lived the life that you should have lived. He lived a life of perfect obedience before the Father. And when He died on the cross, an amazing transaction took place. My sins were placed onto Him. Your sins were placed onto Him. The King died for His people. And thankfully, our story doesn't end there. Three days later, He rose from the dead. He hung out with His friends for 40 days and taught them. And then He ascended to be with God the Father to rule and reign as King of His people who He has redeemed with his own blood. And our story doesn't end there. It keeps going. The king is coming again. In the same way that he came in the flesh, he is coming in the flesh again. Not as a baby, but as the triumphant king of this world. And when he comes physically, his two feet will set on the ground and wicked will be judged. Those outside of Christ will be judged. Those who are in Christ and who have died will be raised physically from the dead and we will be transformed with Him, with the world, and we will live forever with the King. And a big table will be put out and we'll eat a big meal with each other and with King Jesus, who's going to be flipping steaks on the grill for the people that he purchased. And there will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death, for the old order has been put away. Behold, all things have become new. And he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. That's our hope. Let's go back to our verse here. The end of all things is at at hand, therefore. All right, so we got that context now, right? The end of all things is at hand. It's imminent. This is coming. Jesus is coming again. Therefore, so we are a future-shaped community. Our eyes are focused on the future. Therefore, what do we do? We live as a countercultural community in the world. We live as a unique, distinct people of victorious ones. We live as the people of God, a beacon of hope in a lost and dying world. 
So how now shall we live as a future-shaped people? Let me just give you three marks of this countercultural community. Number one, we, are, we have a transformed mind which prays. We have a transformed mind which prays. Look at verse 7, the last section there. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That word sober-minded is in Peter, 1 Peter three times. Which could mean don't get drunk. All right, don't get high. Have a sober mind. It, it does mean that. It includes that. Yet it's also much broader than that. Sober-minded means as uh, someone who's not getting drunk, the, the sober-minded person is someone who has both feet on the ground. They're, they have control of themselves. They're aware of their surroundings. All right, so we can include then temper tantrums into this. We can include pride into this, self-centeredness, narcissism, where you just can't stop looking at yourself in the mirror. Let's be sober-minded. Let's have self-control so that we can have a mind that thinks straight. Let me give you an example of this. Imagine you went to the doc and he told you that you might have cancer. We got to run some lab, some lab tests. And so they did. And now you're waiting for the results. You know what it's like to wait for the results of lab tests? You can't think straight. It's torture. <laughs> Amen. You can't think straight. You can't work. You can't focus. It's even hard to pray. And then how do you, what, how do you feel when the results come back negative? All of a sudden, you've got clarity of thought. I can think straight again. You had the best work day in your life. You're loving people. You're serving. Why? Because the question marks in regards to the future are no longer question marks. But you have a concrete reality, at least for now, temporarily. You see, when we are a future-shaped people, what that means is, is that since we know our future is for sure a concrete hope, we now can think straight. We don't have to get drunk. We don't have to, to get high. We don't have to have anger overwhelm us into, into temper tantrums. We can be self-controlled in our minds. Sober-minded, sober we can get our eyes off of ourselves and start looking at the world around us. Well, our city needs this message, don't we? Friends, our city needs to be sober-minded and self-controlled. But not just for practical reasons. Look, going on, look at, look at his own reasoning here. He says, be sober-minded and self-controlled, he says, for the sake of your prayers. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that if you're sober-minded that you can uh, somehow mystically work up God's ear and He'll listen to your prayers? No. It's much more practical than that. When you're sober-minded and self-controlled, you can pray thoughtful prayers. You can think straight. You can perceive problems. You can come to the throne room of God and pray big prayers. You know, so often we pray for our grandmother's ingrown toenail. And we leave our prayers right about there. But when we are a sober-minded, self-controlled people, we, sure, we'll, we'll pray for the ingrown toenails. 
We'll pray for the immediate problems that are right in front of us, but we're going to begin praying big prayers because we can see the big picture, because we have a sober mind and clear thinking. Have you, when was the last time you prayed against racism? When was the last time you prayed against injustice? When was the last time that you cried out before God, would you move in my own heart and in this city? When was the last time that you realized that the fires of a riot pale in comparison to the fires of hell? And you fell on your knees in tears begging God for a harvest that men and women would know the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. You see, we are a future-shaped people. Therefore, we have clear minds and we pray really good prayers. That's the point here. That's the first mark of what it means to be a countercultural community. Second mark, let me give it to you. We have a transformed heart. I almost stepped off the back here. Woo! Talk about suffering. We have a transformed heart which loves. We have a transformed heart which loves. Look at the next words there in verse 8. He says, above all. Meaning, even above this idea of being self-controlled. Or another way to put it is, when we live self-controlled and sober-minded lives, we now are led into this greater reality. So above all, he says, keeping, keep, loving yourself, uh, keep loving, I'm sorry, one another earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly. Now, what does it mean to love? He goes on, and we see a couple things here. Keep loving each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So the first way in which we love is we become a community of forgiveness. We are transformed into a people of forgiveness. What does that mean? Well, it means we must forgive. We must forgive police. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't hold people to justice. Forgiveness doesn't let go of justice. Do you understand what I'm saying? But forgiveness is a disposition which says, when you turn in repentance to me, I will turn in, uh, in forgiveness to you. We need to forgive any youth that did any damage in our city. Love covers a multitude of sins. We've got to stop smacking people down. We've got to start, stop, stop complaining about people. Look, exposing someone's faults is not love. Just simply doing the hard work of trying to find out where somebody messed up is not love. But we must have a posture and a disposition of forgiveness and of peace. Now forget the social stuff right now for a moment. And look at each other. Love covers a multitude of sins. As a, as a church community, this is where we're countercultural. We forgive. In our society, we don't forgive. 
had a conversation with my barber, who's not a Christian. We, we're talking about the, the reality that forgiveness is just absent in society. We don't know how to forgive. We don't know what forgiveness means. So we as a church then lead the way in being a community of forgiveness. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now why do we do this? Think of our own story for a moment. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And God did what? He forgave. The people of Israel in the wilderness, they began to complain against God and God forgave them. The people of Israel got into the land, into the promised land, and immediately began turning to idols, turning to false gods. And what does God do time and time again? He's a forgiving God and a patient God. And then God comes in Christ and He hangs upon the cross. And as He dies, the words that He utter, utters are what? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. We are a forgiving people and the love that we have covers multitudes of sins. Now, while any healthy church is going to have sorrow over and have to deal with ongoing, destructive, unrepentant sin, we should never do so in a way that brings us joy. Dealing with sin is always sorrowful. And our heart as a church must be the same as the Father's heart who stood day after day after day waiting for His Son to return home. And as soon as that brother and sister returns home, we embrace them. And our love covers their multitude of sins. You may be here today and feel like you have a multitude of sins. Maybe you even hesitated coming to church today because you thought, who am I to go to church? I have a multitude of sins. Those probably weren't your words. Friends, you have come into a room founded upon the words of Jesus, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is the place to be with a multitude of sins because there is love. So our love forgives. Secondly, it goes on, our love also opens homes. Look at the next line. Verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another without groaning. Now in the word hospitality, you see the word what? Hospital. Thank you. When we think of a hospital, we think of a place of sickness. Hopefully there's more than sickness. What else? Healing, there we go, that's what I was looking for. <laughs> Hospitality, while it might mean opening your dinner tables and, and making a meal for someone, hospitality is much broader than that. Hospitality is a disposition toward being a person of, of healing. A person who can enter into a relationship and, and, and provide a, a shoulder to cry on if necessary. A friend who needs to talk can now talk to you. You see, we become a people who are ready to be little mini hospitals walking around. Now, let's not set aside the importance, though, of food. 
Our intern, Greg, he says that his seminary professor once told him, food is very important in ministry. And I think we would all say amen to that, right? Stick around. We'll have a bagel before you leave today. Food is very important in ministry. Why? At the core of hospitality, you often find food. You know, in the Bible, meals were very important. A meal in the Bible meant unity. It meant friendship. It meant relationships. It meant forgiveness. And you know, Jesus gave us a meal to be reminded of His own love for us and His fellowship and His own hospitality toward us while we were yet sinners. We take this meal every week. The Lord's Supper. And there is also, as I've already mentioned, another meal that's coming, a very big meal, where we will sit together with Christ in eternity and eat. So as we are a future-shaped people, as we keep our eyes on that meal, we then become a people of hospitality. Whether that means opening your homes, whether that means having someone at your dinner table, you might say, oh, my house is too messy, I could never open my home. Look, don't clean it. Just open your home, have somebody over into your messy house, and you will make them feel better about their messy house. <laughs> That's true hospitality, right? We've got to get our eyes off of ourselves and what people think of us and start sharing and loving and caring. We take hospitality very seriously as Christians. At least we should. Oh, and we do it without groaning, by the way. Did you, did you catch that? Yeah. Yeah, think of it in the, in the first century context. The people that were first reading this, they're often losing their jobs. They're losing their homes. They're being persecuted. They're being hurt in many ways. And they're being told by Peter, hey, in the midst of all of this poverty in the midst of all of this persecution, be hospitable without groaning. Don't do this as just simply dumb religious activity in order, to, in order to earn brownie points before God. But do it willingly and joyfully without groaning. And we easily can do that, can't we, as we keep our eyes focused on the end. Listen, an invitation to Christ is an invitation to a meal. Maybe you're not a Christian. I want you to know this morning that I am inviting you personally to a meal. It's a big party that we're all moving toward. A huge meal. And you right now have an invitation. What are you going to do with it? Hospitality. Forgiveness. We are a future-shaped countercultural community which loves. That's our second mark. The third mark is this. We are transformed into a body which serves. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks and one, as one who speaks oracles of God whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God provides. Now, right there in verse 11, you, we see these two aspects of service. He mentions both word and deed. He says, whoever speaks, speak as one giving oracles of God. Uh, wh what that means is simply this. If you are speaking, if you have a speaking ministry, 
All right, if you are a teacher, preacher, uh, uh, small group Bible study leader, if you are discipling someone one-on-one, speaking the word of God, know that you, my friend, are representing the very word of God. So represent well is what he's saying. Speak as one who is speaking the very word of God. And then he goes on and he says, those who serve, do it with the strength that God provides. I think a lot of us could say amen to that this week. God provides the strength for the tasks that he calls us to. Listen, there is nothing that God will ever ask you to do in which he won't provide the strength necessary to do it. You might be tired. You might be exhausted. You might die. But you will die well. And you will die strong. So we are a community then transformed into a body which serves. Let's get into this a little bit more here. Uh, A couple things we see from this. Number one, everybody is gifted to serve. Everybody, if you are a Christian in this room, you are gifted to serve. Everyone, he says, has a diverse or a variety of gifts that are given to the body. So we are transformed then from individuals into one body, yet every individual does have a gift to serve that body. Some of those gifts may be more public, such as preaching or teaching. Uh, Some gifts might be more private or or less public, such as uh, someone who's gifted with the ability to fall on their knees before God and pray long, beautiful, needed, thoughtful prayers. You know, we see spiritual gifts throughout the Bible. We see lists, encouragement, exhortation, etc. Hospitality would be one. But I don't think there is one exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Meaning everything that God has given you uh, since conversion to use for the sake and for the service of the church is a spiritual gift. And even natural talents that you were born with have been, every single one of them at conversion, dipped into the power of the Holy Spirit and transformed for God's use. So we are all, in some way, gifted to serve. Everybody look around. This body, all right, actual flesh and blood people. You might say, I don't like these people. Well, you're here. I don't know why you're here then. You're gifted to serve this body and then the broader church as a whole as we love our neighbors. Second thing we see here, we must note at least, is that, that, that spiritual gifts and this gifting, this diverse gifting is much more... Uh, let me put it this way. I'm stumbling over my words a little bit. We shouldn't limit this to the way that the world defines gifting. Does that make sense? So for instance, uh, you might think, well, I can't sing, play, rap, dance, pluck a guitar, whatever, so therefore I'm not gifted to serve in the church. As if service just has something to do with talents, where you can get up on a stage and, and get lights in your eyes. No, service is much more. Don't let the world define for us what giftedness means. We are gifted in all sorts of ways. Even uh, the Bible says that marriage is a gift. It's a gift to serve. You serve your your spouse. You serve through raising a family. The Bible says that singleness is a gift. As, As a single person, you have ways 
through being single, that you can use your singleness for the glory of God and for the building of his kingdom that you otherwise wouldn't be able to if you were married. If you can swing a hammer, that is a gift that God has given you to work a job, to contribute to society, to make money, to support missions, the gospel work. You can put an Excel spreadsheet together. You see what I'm saying? Like, we are gifted in all sorts of ways, both spiritual gifting as well as natural. And we don't let the world define us. Now, thirdly, the, this gifting that we have is not for your benefit, but it's for the benefit of the church. Now, this is a very important point here. I don't want you to miss this. A lot of people today, a lot of Christians, love talking about spiritual gifts. They love talking about the ways that God has gifted them. And maybe they even take spiritual gift inventory tests and they find out there are five or six gifts and ways that God has gifted them. Or maybe they have a, a clear idea, God has gifted me to do this. And then here's the mentality, my gifting, all right, and I need to find a place where I can excel in my gifting. Well, this would make Peter have a stomachache. An individualistic approach to our gifting. And so you might hear someone say, I'm not going to be part of such and such church because I can't use my gifts there. If you ever hear somebody say that, say, what? That doesn't make any sense. Friends, you don't find your gifting and then go find a church where you can use your gifting. You find a church, you start serving, and there you find how God has gifted you to serve the flesh and blood people that are now around you. Do you see how that works? This isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about serving the people that we are around. And God gifts us in all sorts of ways. And some gifts might come and go in order to meet the needs and serve and build up and edify the local believers in which we are placed. It's that simple. So how do you find out, how you, uh, how do you find out your gifting? How do you find out ways that you should serve? Well, forget the tests. Put the tests away. Just simply start serving and you will discover how God has gifted you to serve. Amen? Because we all have the same destination, regardless of race, regardless of class, regardless of who we are, the church comes together as a countercultural beehive of service. And the world should be able to look at it and stand amazed. And that actually leads us to the next point here. Or our, our, final, our final point. Why? That's the last question. Why? What's, why all of this? Why be a countercultural community that is future-shaped? Look at it right here in verse, verse 11. He says, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our future hope is a hope focused on the King that is to come. The Lamb to whom we will forever sing, Worthy are you 
to receive all honor and glory and power for You created all things and by Your will all things existed and were created. Keeping our eyes focused on the King and the future that we will have with the King, we then live in such a way that is exemplary, that is beautiful, that is remarkable, not for our glory. Not so the garden church might have glory. Not so Joel Kerr's may have glory. Not so that you may have glory. But rather we serve so that Christ may be glorified and lifted up in our midst. We serve so that the world might be able to see the, the reality of our song, let it rise. Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the world look at Baltimore and see the glory of God rising from His people in this city as they live a future-shaped reality. Are you part of this family? Are you part of God's family? Are you a blood-bought brother or sister in God's family? Have you been made a citizen of His kingdom? Friend, it is time right now to call out to Him. The Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How do you become part of God's family? Right now, you say, God, I turn away from my sin and I trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Save me. And you will see that the Holy Spirit transforms you, regenerates you, makes you into a new creation, and you are part of His family. Are you part of His family? Friends, if Christ is not your king now, he won't be your king later. But if Christ is your king now, you have found your end. And you have a hope that will last. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you keep our eyes focused on our future. Our concrete hope. So that we might live lives have minds which pray, hearts transformed to love, that we might be a body that is transformed to serve so that Christ may be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.